You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's for various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There are certain key things that we want from India, and there are certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to today's programme. So as the government's key policy to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda is found to be unlawful by the country's top court, we're going to speak to the former Attorney General Dominic Grieve. And of course, we have Prime Minister's questions coming up too. Goodness, plenty of politics to talk about today. That Rwanda ruling, ouch. That resignation letter, double ouch. But let's start off with a bit of good news for the government and the rest of us. UK inflation fell sharply last month to its lowest level in two years, finally coming down. Prices 4.6% higher in October than a year ago, so prices are still up on last year. But the pace of increase has come down dramatically. So that's sharply down from the previous reading in the in September, which was above 6.5%. Mm. So that does mean that Rishi Sunak has ticked off one of his five pledges, arguably the most important one. But as for the other four... Not looking quite so good, is it? No, definitely not. On the bad news front, the Supreme Court has ruled that the government's controversial plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda is unlawful. Bad news, of course, from the government's perspective. Stopping the boats carrying migrants from France across the Channel was another one of the top five pledges. It can't be done, though, says the court, by flying people to a country with poor human rights uh, in terms of it with being Rwanda. MPs extraordinarily seem to now be pressing the government to bypass or just ignore the ruling. The response from the Prime Minister, not the outcome we wanted, he said, but we have spent months uh, planning for all eventualities and we remain completely uh, committed to stopping the boat. So the PM also expected to give a bigger press conference today. Yeah, this is just after this cabinet reshuffle, of course, which saw the Home Secretary Suella Braverman fired and ex-Premier David Cameron making a shock return to politics, the first uh, former PM to become Foreign Secretary since Douglas Hume in 19... 
70, I think it was. <laughs> Alec uh, Douglas humour, okay, yes. <laughs> but of course it was Braverman's incendiary letter uh, which dropped yesterday afternoon that's really raised the stakes for Sunak. It accused the Prime Minister of brokering a commitment to reduce overall legal migration mm. and to exclude the ECHR from the government's policy on asylum seekers. Uh, and former Tory party leader calling the letter a tirade of abuse. Here's, uh, here's the leader of the opposition standing up. The Prime Minister obviously thinks so little of his own MPs that he's had to peel David Cameron away from his seven-year exile in a shepherd's hut and make him Foreign Secretary. But a few months ago, the Intelligence and Security Committee said that the now Foreign Secretary's role in a Chinese investment fund may have been, and this is their words, engineered by the Chinese state. I hardly need to remind the Prime Minister of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party or the intimidation against members of this House. So when will he instruct the Foreign Secretary to give full public disclosure of his work for Chinese interests? Mr Speaker, as I said, I'm delighted that the former Prime Minister has rejoined government as Foreign Secretary. As as an individual with unrivalled experience, he will help Britain navigate an uncertain world in challenging times. Of course, like every other government minister, he will go through the normal process with the independent adviser. But the government's position on China is clear. China represents an epoch-defining challenge. That's why we have taken strong and robust steps to protect ourselves against the risk that it poses. But we'll take no lessons, Mr Speaker, from the Labour Party on protecting our national security. They've they've taken almost £700,000 from an alleged Chinese agent. Mr Speaker, Sorry? Uh, yes, I think now you're on the front bench. We need to just calm down. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, for someone who spent the last few weeks complaining about recycling bins, it's ironic that his latest reset involves recycling the architects of 13 years of Tory failure. But this is the Prime Minister who also reanimated the career of the member for Fareham in order to resuscitate his own just days after she was sacked for a national security breach. Is he ashamed that he was so desperate to become Tory leader, so scared to face a vote, that he put someone so totally unfit for office in charge of Britain's national security? Uh, Mr Speaker, he mentions 13 years. We remember what happened at the beginning of that 13 years. It was this party that restored this country's financial security after after the Labour Party left no money behind, Mr Speaker, and it is a bit rich to take lectures on security from a man who wanted to make the former member for Islington North Prime Minister of our country. The member for Islington North isn't even a Labour MP anymore. A change party and strong leadership, Mr Speaker. Luke, with a lot of business today, very important business with some important votes, and I want to get through this speedily. Mr Speaker, for 13 years our security has been undermined by this Tory government, and now, now the most ridiculous, pathetic spectacle of all. His Rwanda scheme, cooked up with his national security threat Home Secretary, has blown up. He was told over and over again that this would happen, that it wouldn't work and it was just the latest Tory gimmick. Gimmick. But he bet everything on it. 
and now he's totally exposed. The central pillar of his government has crumbled beneath him. Yeah. Does he want to apologise to the country for wasting £140 million of taxpayer cash and wasting his entire time in office? Yeah. Mr Speaker, obviously the, the person officer didn't hear what I said about our approach to Rwanda, and not least when it comes to stopping the boat. Rwanda is one part of our plan which has already delivered a reduction in the number of small boats this year by a third, Mr Speaker. But he talks about apologising. He talks about the former member not being a Labour MP now. Yes, he wasn't a Labour MP when he declined 15 different times to say that Hamas was a terrorist organisation this week, which is shameful. But he was a Labour MP. Indeed, the honourable gentleman served with him. He told the country he would make a great Prime Minister. At that point, he described Hamas of friends. Does he want to apologise for that now? Are we serious? No. Because I'm going to tell you. Oh, I wouldn't challenge. Because I've got to say, our constituents are watching this. They're very, very concerned about the affairs of today. They're very concerned about the votes later. A lot of members wish to speak. Those who don't want that to happen, please go outside, go and have a conversation there. You want to bowl and shout, do it elsewhere. But it won't be happening in here today. Kiss them. Mr Speaker, I'm so glad he agrees this is a changed Labour Party. Yeah. And, and while he was wasting his time on this gimmick, the asylum backlog has swollen to 175,000 people. Taxpayers are paying £8 million a day on hotel bills and 615 people arrived by small boat last Sunday alone. Plan A has failed. And after this session, whether he likes it or not, he'll have to go back to his office, back to the drawing board, and start from scratch. Can he assure the British public that he will drop what his former Home Secretary calls his magical thinking and start treating small boat crossings with the seriousness that they deserve? Mr Speaker, he talks about a changed Labour Party. Perhaps we'll see that this evening. He can't even make his party do the right thing when it comes to standing by Israel in the vote later today. He talks about taking small boats crossing seriously. He's opposed every single measure that we have taken, Mr Speaker. Again, let me update him on what we've done this year. The number of illegal Albania arrivals down by 90%. 20,000 people returned this year. The number of crossings down by a third. He mentioned hotels closing 50 of them, money being saved for taxpayers, all, all, by the way, opposed by the party opposite. What is the honourable gentleman's plan? Ah, yes, there we have it, a cosy deal with the EU, which would see the UK accept 100,000 illegal migrants. He doesn't want to stop the boats, he wants to welcome more of them. Mr Speaker, it's very straightforward. He promised, he promised that he would stop the boats this year. This year. Today is the 15th of November. He's wasted all of his time on a gimmick, and now he's absolutely nowhere. Will he level with the British public and finally admit he's failed to deliver on his promise? Mr Speaker, this government has done more to tackle illegal migration than any in the past. And again, let's just review, Mr Speaker. He's been on the wrong side of this issue his entire career. 
This is a man who described all immigration law as racist. He said it was a mistake to control immigration, and he has never once in this place voted for stricter asylum rules. It's clear, Mr Speaker, while he might want to listen to the open border activists, I'm siding with the British people. I would have thought if he was confident about his promise, he would have given an answer saying he stands by it and will deliver by the end of the year. But the absence of that answer is absolutely amazing in the circumstances. He's had three reshuffles, a forgotten conference speech, an empty king speech. He even found time to fanboy Elon Musk. But not one of them has made the slightest difference to the lives of working people. If we had a pound for every time we had a reset, the cost of living crisis would be over long ago. Now, he likes to think of himself as the man from Silicon Valley, the tech-savvy Californian, the country's first AIPM. And yet his big idea is to keep turning his government on and off and hope at the wall and hope that we'll see signs of life. Is he... Is he starting to feel that, as somebody once said, he was the future once? I slightly missed the end of that, but I, I've got to say, I was, I was glad. I was glad to hear finally. I was glad to hear finally the honourable gentleman did bring up the cost of living, because on that he is right. That is the number one challenge facing countries up and down the family. And today, again, he mentioned it, but what he failed to recognise, and he talked about delivering on promises, today was a day that we delivered on the most important pledge I make to halve inflation, Mr Speaker. Delivering on a commitment, easing the burden for families up and down the country. What we would see from the party opposite is everything would jeopardise that progress, borrowing £28 billion a year undermining our energy security, giving in to inflation-busting pay rises to his union backers. That's not a sensible plan, Mr Speaker. It would push up mortgage rates, push up inflation, harm working families. All the while, we're going to continue delivering for the country. Okay, so that was the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak there ending, well, what was a very testy Prime Minister's questions and one in which I think Starmer landed quite a few blows. Uh, He managed to get to the positive news that we mentioned at the start Mm -hmm. of the programme about halving inflation. The rest of it, though, was immensely difficult um, because, of course, uh, Starmer saying that Sunak promised that he would stop the boats this year. It's the 15th of November, talking about how he had wasted time on a gimmick, i.e., you know, the, the, the Rwanda policy, which has uh, gone through court now, was a, was a waste of time. Um, Kiss, uh, sorry, Rishi Sunak countering, though, that actually crossings have been down by a third this year. So that was his defence. Yeah, and Sunak saying that Starmer has never voted for tougher asylum measures. Sunak also trying to, uh, he's done this before, of course, trying to pin Jeremy Corbyn's, uh, uh, trying to attach Jeremy Corbyn to the to the Labour leader. But I thought um, Starmer kind of rebuffed that quite effectively, saying that, of course, he's no longer he's a Labour MP. MP. Yeah, so because he's dealt with it in that way. Um, Starmer saying that Braverman was totally unfit for office and saying that she shouldn't have been appointed 
uh, by the Prime Minister. I was slightly surprised that Sunak didn't try to uh, pivot to Labour divisions on the ceasefire in Gaza. He did mention that, but he didn't mm. he didn't really sort of go uh, heavy on that because, of course, Labour it has quite an issue with this at the moment. Lots of resignations in the party. And he didn't really sort of push that. I would have thought that would be an obvious thing for the Prime Minister to do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think it's also about the Prime Minister trying to attack the Labour Party on things that are um, quite long in the tooth now in the sense of the handover from Labour 13 years ago. He went back to that attack line of, um, you know, the the Conservative government at that point, you know, not having enough money. And also, yes, uh, it does feel like Keir Starmer has managed to neutralise the idea of Jeremy Corbyn and and, um, his stance on on Israel and Hamas and the war there. You know, that does seem to have been sidelined quite effectively because, as you say, he's not a he's not an MP. So a little summary then of what we heard uh, today. Um, I also wanted to mention, though, that we should keep an eye, of course, on the motion that will come up. You mentioned that this could be a real testing ground for um, Labour, and that is the Scottish National Party. This issue, this motion by them could be selected by the Speaker today, which calls for an outright ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Labour want MPs to abstain, not to engage if it is called this afternoon. Um, Instead, back their amendment to the King's speech to reaffirm Labour's position on the conflict. It's critical of Israel, but obviously it stops short of a ceasefire. But Starmer could face a significant rebellion of a number of front benches. How does he deal with that? Does he then sack them? That's the difficulty that that Labour faces today. Yes, I think if it's two or three, then perhaps he can sack them. But if it's more than that, if it's a, if it's a double-digit number and there is some talk of that, mm. then sacking all of those people, that's not ideal, is it? So this is a, a very tricky tricky issue for, for the leader of the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's move on to the Rwanda asylum seekers scheme. It is uh, unlawful, according to the UK Supreme Court, a blow to the government who could now face months of party division over how to respond. Joining us this morning is our Bloomberg legal reporter, Jonathan Browning, who heard the decision live in court and uh, came out very swiftly with the conclusion. Just how disappointing do you think the decision is then for Sunak's government? I mean, it's it's left his, his flagship policy in tatters. He's without... Um, the legal underpinning for the crucial line, one of his five key pledges of stop the boats. Um, and the, the, the perhaps the stunning thing about the Supreme Court ruling was there was no middle way through. Mm. They did not thread the needle. They literally came in and and couldn't be clear about it. They said that Rwanda is not a safe place. Um, to process uh, asylum seekers because they run the risk themselves of being deported to a third country or even their home country. Um, And it was unlawful. And full stop. There was nothing... There was almost no comfort they could take. And yet the government and some MPs seem to be saying now that there's a possibility of ignoring or of somehow finding a way around this ruling. How do you think about that legally? I mean... As I said, the Supreme Court itself couldn't have been clearer. Um, it's still open, obviously, for the government to to legislate. Um, Parliament is sovereign. Um, the Supreme Court sits directly across Westminster from the Houses of Common, House of Commons, and the Houses House of Lords. But it's Parliament to make those calls. Um, so it is it is it is for it is for MPs to to kind of come back to something. And they've you know, they've floated these ideas of, of potentially other countries uh, or um, that that asylum seekers could could potentially be sent to. And I saw that Sunak himself um, 
maybe he was grasping at straws a little bit, but but said that the Supreme Court didn't say there was a, a, a theoretical problem with deporting uh, asylum seekers to a third country. It was the question of, in this case of whether or not Rwanda would do um, a fair and safe job in that. Just explain a, a bit more about the ruling. This isn't just, it's not quite as straightforward as, as just being about the ECHR, is it? It's a, it's a wider, it's a more complicated problem for the government. It is. And um, Lord Reid, the president of the Supreme Court, was at pains right at the beginning of his, his summary to say actually that um, it's not just the ECHR, it's the UN um, conventions that the UK has signed up to that are also underpinning, um, if you like, the Supreme Court's decision to to consider the risks um, of a policy like this. And um, it is therefore kind of quite hard to extricate all of that when actually there are several signatories um, that have to, to various treaties that the UK is, is part of. Yeah, the European Convention on Human Rights, it's not just that, it's other treaties that underpin basically human rights law in in the UK. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's legal reporter, Jonathan Browning, therefore putting today's decision into context for us. Really appreciate your time. Well, let's get another view on this from Dominic Grieve, former Attorney General for England and Wales from 2010 to 2014 under David Cameron. Thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics today. What do you make of this uh, court ruling on the Rwanda policy? It doesn't come as a surprise because it was clear when the Court of Appeal looked at the matter that they had serious concerns about whether Rwanda would be able to honour its obligations uh, in respect of handling refugees and asylum seekers correctly, or whether there was a risk that they might deport them to other countries from which they could be sent back to the places from which they'd come, which is contrary to our international legal obligations, under the various UN treaties that we are signed up to, and which on top of that, as you correctly just had explained to you, are incorporated into our own national law through um, a series of acts quite separate from the Human Rights Act. And and essentially, the court has reiterated the view that the Court of Appeal took and has explained that um, it's not that the policy of sending people to Rwanda is per se in breach of anything, but the realities of Rwanda uh, has made the court consider that, in fact, Rwanda, you cannot accept simply the assurances. You have to look at the track record of Rwanda in this respect. And on that basis, it's said that it's impossible. Okay, so if it's so obvious, what are the government's options now? Well... One possibility, which seems to be being talked about, is that the government uh, will go back to Rwanda and try to beef up the assurances and, in fact, turn it into a binding treaty so that it could then persuade the court that, in fact, uh, the nature of the binding treaty that it now has with Rwanda is such rather than just a memorandum of understanding uh, that in those circumstances, uh, the court could be satisfied that, in fact, this type of deportation uh, to Rwanda of uh, illegal asylum seekers, as the government describes them, uh, can take place. What do you make of reports? Uh, otherwise, that... it's going to have to abandon the policy and, and find some alternative. But there's no doubt that there is a possible way forward on the basis of this judgment. Do you think that could work? Well, it might work. The question then still arises whether this policy in more generally will work. Well, one's got to understand that in many ways this is a symbolic policy. And the government, I think, is hoping 
that the sight of uh, a few people being deported to Rwanda, not thousands, because I don't think Rwanda will take that many, would be sufficient to break the business model of the uh, uh, of the people smugglers who are encouraging people to come to Britain by small boats because they say once you're there, uh, you are going to be able to stay there irrespective of your status and the chances of your ever being removed are rather low. And that's why people are spending a great deal of money to try and come in by this means. Okay, Quite that, apart that's... from the driving forces for them leaving their country of origin. Yeah, and that seemed to be perhaps what the Prime Minister was pointing out in PMQs ju- just now. Would a binding treaty, though, actually trump the, the myriad concerns of the court? Do you think that would actually be effective? Well, it might help um, say whether it doesn't trump the binding concerns of the court, because the court will still then consider the situation in Rwanda in the light of there being a binding treaty. But it would certainly go further than the government's current arrangements. And I can see that that could therefore uh, be the moment when the government says, actually, looking at the court says, looking at this in the round, uh, we are satisfied that it meets the necessary tests both under the European Convention on Human Rights and also it meets the tests in, in respect of the UK's international obligations as embodied in United Kingdom law at the moment. Of course, there is an alternative route forward and you know, the government talks about it or threatens it, not the government, but ministers leave the ECHR. And then on top of that, you wouldn't just have to leave the ECHR, you, you would have to repeal all those acts which incorporate the protections which the UN conventions have in it. So you'd have to do both those things. And of course, there are reputational and international consequences from doing that that are really serious, not just about reputation, but about the working of the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, our mm. participation in any okay. form of uh, yeah. of cooperation. Enor- with an the enormous EU amount of work would have to. Yeah, an yeah. enormous amount of work would have to be done. To, to, that is a basically a rethinking of a huge amount of law. Let's it's put that aside. Yeah. Yes, yeah. totally revolutionary. Short of that, MPs are backing this amendment. Um, potentially proposing uh, the idea also of adding a notwithstanding clause when it comes to this policy. I'm not a lawyer, but to understand this clause, it basically would say that it would allow this law to proceed notwithstanding Britain's other legal obligations. Is that feasible to you? No, because um, whilst it is feasible legally... So why is it being proposed by Conservative MPs? Uh, Why is it being considered? Because they're living in a fantasy world. The fantasy world is that the United Kingdom can can simply override its international legal obligations whenever it suits it without consequence. You can do it, but it is equivalent to breaching our ECHR obligations. Once we've done it, we'll end up in the European Court of Human Rights. And then if there is a ruling against us in the European Court of Human Rights, we've either got to do something about it and rectify it, or alternatively, we will end up having to leave the Council of Europe. And if we leave the Council of Europe, that has a knock-on effect on our trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. It has a knock-on effect on the Good Friday Agreement with the with, with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, it has a knock-on. It has a significant knock-on effect on a wide range of international relationships, and the Dominic. same with overriding the UN the UN uh, conventions that are incorporated into our law. If the government pursued leaving the ECHR, as as has been suggested, how serious a split would that cause in the Conservative Party? 
I think it would be a very profound split because I think there are some members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party who would simply say that that was the moment when they could no longer remain in it. Okay. Um, In terms... This has been a long-running issue, though. I mean, is it a mistake to have, you know, migration targets, trying to bring migration targets down? In some senses, this goes back to the targets on immigration um, that David Cameron brought in in a speech in 2011 when you were Attorney General yourself. He said, we're concerned about the levels of immigration in our country, but we are fed up of hearing politicians talk tough but do nothing. Is there some element of responsibility for setting that hair running that that, that lies at the door of Cameron and, if, if it's not too rude to say, to you? I think it goes back a long way before uh, David Cameron. It goes back to lab- Labour governments as well. Uh, there is but that was a significant speech. About, it was a significant speech. But if you look back to the record under Labour governments, there were similar speeches about trying to curb migration or control things. It goes up and down like a yo-yo. And as public concern rises, so politicians try to respond. I certainly agree that raising public expectations about what you can do about inward flows of people trying to get into Europe as a consequence of the political, environmental and social problems existing outside is dangerous because unless you intend to resort to probably lethal methods to stop it, it's a very difficult flow to prevent. And actually, the United Kingdom is relatively sheltered against that flow. It is worth bearing in mind that we are talking here in the worst year of about 45,000 people coming in by these illegal means, at the same time as we're quite cheerfully admitting around half a million people from outside of the EU, because we're now left, um, by by lawful immigration means. I'm not sure the public actually make a big distinction between this. They're quite worried about immigration more generally. I'd just like to get your thoughts on David Cameron's return. Do you think that signals a, a directional shift in the Conservative Party? It certainly signals a shift uh, by Rishi Sunak that he wants to have stable government and not government which is being dominated by the headlines of ministers who will not accept collective responsibility like Sweller Braverman and have views which are I think the best way to describe them populist are quite extreme in, in their nature mm. and uh, and believe that the does, solution to problems is to shout loudly in the marketplace okay does this really solve comments about other people does this just mean more instability over the next 12 months ahead of uh, another general election, the reshuffle, the change? And this week's been huge. Whether it actually makes any difference to the outcome of the next election is, I think, questionable, because the problem the Conservative government has now got is as a result of Brexit, which yep. has proved to be bluntly a policy failure, as a result okay. of the Johnson and Trust governments, which have proved to be governmental failures of a pretty epic scale, He's left and with a legacy of trying to very... renew the government against that background. Dominic Grieve, former Attorney General for England and Wales under David Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. So a lively discussion then on the court's decision about the Rwanda policy. Well, that's it from a very busy day in politics. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Now, this episode was produced by James Walcock and Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepker. And I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.